Good morning, church family. It is great to be with you today on a wonderful Sabbath day where we have set aside time to come worship our Savior. We have been here at Grace Point going through a series on discipleship, and we've taken a little break to look into Matthew, but today they're going to kind of meet back up again. And I spent time this week trying to remember, okay, I spent time last night freaking out trying to remember if I, if we had talked about this individual we're going to speak about today already. Um, I chose to just go with it rather than do the research because I was already, I was already all the way into it. So if we already talked about this guy, I apologize. Maybe I'll have something new to say um, this time. But today we're going to spend some time. The other thing that happened interesting as I prepared for this that I just have to let you guys know. Um, a lot of times, well, one, let me say it this way. One thing I love about this church is our secretaries or administrative assistants, excuse me, um, our administrative helpers, assistants, um, don't require that I give them a title on Tuesday or Wednesday. In fact, they don't require that I give them a title at all. And that is fantastic. However, it often, or at least this time, led to an unusual situation because sometimes my title will actually drive my sermon, you know, and I'll have that first and, you know, whatever that will drive. This is not the case. As I was wrapping things up and getting this prepared last night at one in the morning, I still did not have a title. So this is what came out at one in the morning. Today's sermon is titled The Herald and the Hair, or The Herald in Hair, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know, maybe it'll make sense as we go along, but at one in the morning, that's the best I've got. So that is where we are at today as we dive in to the story of John the Baptist. And I invite you to bow your heads as we continue this morning. Lord, we just know that your spirit is present and ask that you will continue to fill our hearts and fill our minds. May we worship you today in spirit and truth. Today we're going to be looking at John the Baptist. John the Baptist, his story in Matthew starts in chapter 3. We've looked at the first two chapters of Matthew, done the Christmas story outside of the Christmas hubbubabloo. That is a real word today. Um, so we've been looking at that, but today we're going to move into chapter 3 and look at John the Baptist. We go from Jesus as a baby to Jesus coming on the scene as a, as a minister, doing his ministry, and John the Baptist comes on the scene and starts the, the, begins the ministry of Jesus. First, a couple facts about him that I think are interesting. John was, as you may know, the cousin of Jesus. Elizabeth and Mary were somehow related together. And so the Bible says that Jesus and John were cousins. They were family. And as you may know, they, the pregnancies coincided and John leapt in the womb when they got close by. Those stories are all there. He was a cousin of Jesus. But it's also interesting to note that John the Baptist, his birth, his name, and his occupation, essentially, were announced by the angel Gabriel. So there's interesting similarities between the, the beginnings of, these, of John the Baptist and Jesus. 
John's birth was also miraculous. And I was thinking about this. The birth of Jesus, as we all know, the virgin birth of Jesus, a miraculous thing that we have never seen before or since that event. A miraculous birth. The birth of John was also miraculous because Elizabeth was much older and the Bible says she was barren. So here we have somebody who should not be having a child with somebody who could not be having a child. And both of them had children who were active. I mean, one was Jesus and the other was Jesus, Jesus's herald. I think often in my life, and maybe in your lives, and maybe something you've experienced, I often feel like I am not able, like I am not worthy or capable of doing something for God. But when I look at the birth stories of Jesus and Mary, when I look at the birth stories of Elizabeth with John, I am reminded that it is not my capability or ability that does anything to make me a minister or a worker for Christ. It is God's ability working through me to take me and transform me into what he wants me to be. The birth of John was miraculous, and we can learn from that. John the Baptist came for a purpose. And I want to take a moment to talk about John, John's purpose. The Bible says his ministry, when he got out into the wilderness and was preaching, Matthew and the other gospel writers applied to him the saying that I have come to make straight the way of the Lord. Sometimes these phrases that are used just flip over our heads and we just we don't realize exactly what they're saying or maybe what they were referencing. But this is interesting. There's a lot of depth and understanding in this make straight the way of the Lord. In ancient times, in those times, the the highway system did not exist. The mode of travel was thought to be an absolute detriment in your life. In fact, there was an old proverb that said, there are three states of misery. Sickness, fasting, and travel. Travel was something where if you were going on a long trip, you got your affairs in order, you took care of everything that you needed to at the house, you packed and planned, you made sure contingencies were set and working so that when you left, you said goodbye to everybody just in case the high probability that you wouldn't make it back happened. Travel was something that was difficult back then. The roads were best compared to maybe hiking trails. However, there were a few surfaced roads. These roads in these areas would be built to be used specifically by the kings. They were kept in repair only when the king might need to use them. And if he was coming to an area, a notice would be sent out and they would get the roads repaired so that the king could come down this highway, this maintained nice, good road the king could use so that 
his path, his way would be easy and the travel would be safe. This is what John was doing for Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, was coming. And John was out there trying to clear the clutter out of the lives of those who would hear the message. So that the way of Jesus would be made easier so that his message could get through smoothly and would not get lost in the way. John's purpose was to make straight, to clear a path so that Jesus could come through with his ministry. John's other purpose. John confronted sin wherever he found it. If you read in Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to touch on it just just a little bit later, But if you read the message of John to those in the wilderness that were being baptized by him, it is not a message that instills much comfort. It is not a message meant to lift you up when you are down. It is a message that confronts sin head on. It, in fact, when he confronted Herod's sin... Herod was having a relationship that wasn't good, and John confronted him. And this confrontation got John thrown into prison. John confronted sin wherever it was at, and he was not afraid to say what needed to be said, because his purpose was to clear out the clutter. John the Baptist stood out in his appearance. He stood out in his style. Now, I don't imagine that the Bible writers had this in mind, but I find it interesting that it specifically noted what John was wearing. I don't think it was like the red carpet of today where somebody was like, oh, who are you wearing? You know, oh, yes, what is that material? It was camel's hair. And, oh, what's that great snack you have? It's bugs. Dried out and dipped in honey. Do you want some? It wasn't, this was not something that you think you would want to really even say about somebody. Yes, they wore camel's hair clothes. The striking fashion of the 30th, how would that be, 31st century. I probably just messed that all up. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> the, 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 what would that be? Somebody help me out. How would I say it? The first century, but then, yeah, first century. Okay, there. All right. Like I said, okay, we're here to learn about God, not math. So <laughs> let's just focus on that. <clears throat> the first century, this was not cutting edge first century Fashion. We're 11 centuries away from what I was talking about, so hopefully we never make it there. All right. Um, John the Baptist stood out in his style. He stood out in this outfit that he wore, so much so that all of the gospel writers 
well, not all of them, but a couple of them mention specifically what he was wearing. And I think that there is a point more than just to say this dude was whack. You know, this dude was not in style and he ate weird food. Okay, I think there was more to it. Whenever you dig into a a book of the Bible, it's important to understand and try to grasp what the original author might have been trying to say and who he was talking to. Matthew's audience is thought to be the Jews. Matthew, in the way he writes, it is apparent that he was writing to people who understood the Jewish culture and religion and had those concepts in their minds. There's a couple literary techniques that he uses that bring this out, and we're not going to take time to look at those today, but he wrote to the Jews. Mark and Luke are often thought to have wrote to the Gentiles to have that audience as their focus. So why would Matthew make a point of specifying John's appearance? Some, some think that it had a lot to do with the fact that John was anti-culture. He was, he was about simplicity, and I think that is an excellent point. But I think there might be something even a little more interesting than that to notice about why Matthew might point out what John was wearing. You see, the Jews, they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the one to come, and they thought that that one to come was going to be, maybe, hopefully, be Elijah. And Second Kings, the book of Second Kings, it says, he, this is speaking of Elijah, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And this was Elijah the Tishbite. So the comparison of being in the desert, of wearing this outfit of hair and a leather belt that is specifically mentioned in Matthew is the exact outfit that Elijah wore. And so they were hoping that maybe John the Baptist was Elijah come back to prepare the way. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, This is two verses, coincidentally, I think, but two verses before the end of the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The Jews were looking for someone, were looking for Elijah. And this indicator of a man in the wilderness who ate weird food and wore weird clothes that looked a lot like Elijah was an indicator to them that, hey, this man had a message about the long-awaited Messiah. This was the prophet that was promised. Because remember, they had gone 400 years without a word from the Lord. This week... I went two days without a word from somebody who's become important in my life at this time. 
Um, it seems as good as time as any to share with everybody, but Anna and I are in the process of buying a house. Praise God for that. It's our first house, and so it's all brand new. Each day that happens is brand new, and it's been a whirlwind of activity up until our appraisal happened, and then dead, deafening silence. And so this week was a bit of a struggle for me as I did not hear from my loan advisor or my realtor on, hey, yes, your house was good, it appraised right, or it didn't. I struggled in that silence. It took every ounce of restraint on my part to not be calling her every single minute, her being either one of them. They both happen to be ladies. I wanted to talk to them and hear from them each day because I'm scared to death going through this process. But yet it was silence for two whole days. 400 years had gone by where the voice of God had not been heard. They were anxious, waiting, tired of being in bondage to the Romans, tired of just hoping for the Messiah to come. They were ready. The God had seemingly gone silent. But this callback to Elijah was a reminder to them that God had not forsaken his people, even in the silence. This was a call back to say, remember how I spoke to you in the past, because it's starting to happen again. And this time, it's not the announcement of destruction or of, of, of hope of the Messiah. It is the announcement of the Messiah coming to you. God had not forsaken his people, even in the silence. There is a good word for us today in that. Because sometimes it feels like it's been 2,000 years now where the Lord has been, not, has been silent, where the promised return of our Messiah has not happened, and we can become discouraged. But we have been told, no, there will come other people. There will come signs that I am coming. Hang on and hold fast to the promise. That just as Jesus came that first time, he will come again. In the silence, God is still there. So now I want to move on to John the Baptist's message. In those days, this is Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A series of sermons could probably be preached on this one text. There is a bunch of unpacking to be done. We will do our best to just unpack a part of it today. But I want to look at John the Baptist's message. What was it that he was saying? The main focus of his message was to repent. 
Repentance seems simple enough. Does it not? Does, does repentance seem simple to you? I mean, on the surface, yes. I think we're all maybe a little more in tune with maybe what repentance truly means. But repentance on the surface seems simple enough. But we want to unpack this and make sure we understand what exactly John was saying to the people. In English, the focal the focus of the word repentance is often sorrow or contrition, being being sorry that a per for the experiences a person has because of sin. One, one of the sources I was reading this week referred to this verse, this word, as the worst translation in all of the Bible. Because in English, we don't have a word that truly describes what it means to repent. Repentance is more than being sorry. It's more than sorrow for an experience of sin. John was calling for a total change in thought and behavior. If you're following along in the Bible, Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to read this sermon to you, his message. It starts in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. I encourage us not to welcome people to our church with this wonderful extension of love. Um, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hallelujah. Repentance that John was preaching was more than being sorry. He was calling for an utter and complete turning away from sin. A complete 180 U-turn to face the path that you were not traveling on, to look in the other direction. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I think sometimes when we get caught up and start to read some of this stuff, our modern sensibilities begin to be like, well, no, let's soften that down a little bit. But there is no way to soften down what John is preaching. 
John is preaching that the repentance that needs to happen in the life of a believer needs to be so thorough, needs to be so complete in a person that it is night and day. That it is something that you just walk in and say, whoa, what happened to you from the time I saw you 10 minutes ago? I often get in trouble at home when I don't notice, you know, the half an inch of hair that has been taken off of my wife's lovely hair or the ounce of coloring that's been added to it. Although her hairstylist that she used to go to was amazing because she would just cut her hair and I uh, promise you, I stand firm that every time she just trimmed her hair, it changed the color. And I'd be like, oh, you colored your hair. No, she just cut my hair. So anyway, talk to her if you're looking for an amazing stylist up in the Grass Valley area. Um, I'm not getting any payment for that from the stylist. So take it for what it's worth. The repentance, though, is not something that is just... John wasn't saying it's going to be small, going to be... Slight, going to be easy. It was difficult to the point that it seems impossible. Repentance, evidence of repentance, fruit of repentance was important for John. There was a young man who was going to go off to college overseas and spend a year studying, studying abroad. At home in the States, he had a girlfriend. And he loved this girl, and it, she was the one. And they, they, were, they just weren't sure about this long-distance relationship. But he wanted to make it work. And so he goes off and spends the first few months away and just is completely enamored with this woman and decides she's the one. At Christmas, when they meet up together, he promises and declares his love for this amazing woman and asks to be, to be married, to have the privilege of marrying her. She is a little bit uncertain of this because he's off alone, in places where there are exotic distractions and lots and lots of people who might steal his heart. So she, she tells him, I will say yes on a condition. I'm going to give you this little harmonica. When you come back, or all on, on those nights when you feel distracted or don't have anything to do, I'm going to give you this so that you have something to do, something to learn. And so he goes away, goes back, and takes a harmonica with him. Finally, he comes back home and is at the airport, and he sees their eyes meet, and he runs. He runs to her and starts to throw his arms around her because he knows he has passed the test. She puts a hand on his chest and stops him. Whoa, whoa there, boy. First, let me hear you play the harmonica. 
the evidence of his faithfulness was going to be seen in the fruits of his ability to play the harmonica. Our repentance will bear fruits. It must bear fruits. In fact, the Greek, the word that is used there for this repentance, there's more to it. There's actually some other words that sometimes get translated repentance that actually mean the I'm sorry for what happened. The word is used of Judas. This is Judas after he's betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus had been condemned and he regretted what he had done. The and our New Revised Standard Version actually translate Jesus. He saw that Jesus was condemned and he repented. This repentance of Judas was not the 180 degree turnaround repentance. He was sorry that what he had done had gotten Jesus condemned, but he was not truly repentant. Repentance is more than turning around. This is the message that John was preaching. But as with all things, with all things with Jesus, where there is a call, a charge, a challenge, there is also a promise. And John had that promise as well. He shared God's promises in the midst of this message. He was sharing God's promises. In verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's interesting, as we look at this, there's one phrase I just kind of jumped out at me, the after one who is coming after me. This, this isn't just like I'm first, he's second in line sort of a thing. This is coming after. There's, there's more indicated here than just I'm, I'm first on the scene, he's second on the scene. Jesus is coming after John. In the early days of Jesus' ministry, he was thought to be a disciple of John. And John knew this, and we and he pleads and, and talks about his the fact that he is unworthy to even do a servant's job for the one who follows him. What we have here is already servant leadership of Jesus being displayed in John. Because remember, in that upper room, Jesus did do that servant's when it was obvious that Jesus was greater than John, he still did the servant leadership. John was displaying that already. He will baptize you, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here is where the promise comes. Here is where the promise comes comes to meet the challenge that John has presented. As I'm sure that you know, but I just want to point this out again, the word spirit is an interesting word that has lots of different underlying meanings. 
First, the word spirit, ruach, in the Hebrew or pneuma in the Greek, um, literally means breath. Literally means breath. The breath of life. This past week I did something crazy um, and tried to do something... Well, I went to get my lifeguarding recertification um, without much preparation and realized quickly that my ability to hold my breath underwater is not what it once was. And as I was fighting giant men under the water, I was having a reminder of the appreciation for the beautiful breath of life. It was, it was rough. It was difficult. And I realized that I had let part of that go and hadn't kept it up enough in my life. And I was craving those breaths when I came back to the surface. The breath that Jesus promises, uh, promises us is the breath of life, His Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, brings us the breath of life that we need to live. It is the promise of life. It also means wind. Wind has an amazing power. Um, one of the things that I love to do is sail. And when I was a teenager kind of just learning. I was at summer camp and we had gone on this, this lake trip and I was on the sailboat and we're trying to sail downwind. If you know anything about sailing, sailing downwind or with the wind is the absolute worst. It's just boring as all get out because you don't go very fast. You don't create any power. So the, the guy who was captaining this little catamaran that we were on said, oh, I have an idea. He wanted to make the sail tighter, see if we couldn't get a little more push. And so he had me stand on the edge of the boat, turn around and lean out and sit on the boom holding the sail. So this was water. I was sitting out over here. I can't see what's going on. There's another boat ahead of us that suddenly almost tips over. There's a wind shift and it tips over. And the guy, the guy driving the sailboat, helming the sailboat, um, saw that and just started laughing hysterically until we got to the same point where that same wind shift was and the sail that I was sitting on filled up with air on the other side and my little 160-pound body at the time was flung across the boat and out into the water as the wind shifted and just picked me up and pushed me like I was nothing. Wind is power. With the Spirit of God, we get the promise of life and we get the promise of power. Also in the Spirit is the creative aspect of God. The Spirit that hovered over the waters when the world was in darkness and chaos. That Spirit of God that moved on the face of these of the waters turn darkness and disorder into order and light. The creative power of the Spirit 
is the promise of recreation in our lives. And so here's the point that I really want to drive home today. The call to repentance that is an amazingly, almost seemingly impossibly high standard is only met when the power of the Spirit is in our lives, giving us life, power, and recreation. One author says it this way, a repentance such as this is beyond the reach of our own power to accomplish. It is obtained only through Christ who has sent it up on high and who has given gifts unto men. Actually, I'm going to leave that up there. Can I go backwards? Sweet. The power to repent. The repentance that is that complete turning around is something that we do not contain within ourselves. It is given to us only by Jesus. But Jesus does not require repentance for us to come to him. Jesus has said, come unto me. And if we have to back up into Jesus, if we have to stay as we are and back into Jesus, it is when we meet with Jesus that he will give us the power, the recreation in our lives, the, the life to turn around and truly repent. That power comes only through Jesus as we turn to him, as we focus and spend time thinking about Jesus. The high calling of repentance in our lives will be given to us by the power of Jesus. This is an amazing promise, an amazing truth in our lives. We can meet the high callings of Jesus. Because he has promised and told us, I will provide the power. All you have to do is come to me. What an amazing Savior we serve. What an amazing creator that he has given us the requirement and also provides the power. That power is available for each of us today. And I know as I go through my life, I need to be reminded of this. I need to turn to Jesus. And if I can't turn to Jesus, I need to just back up into Jesus and allow him to turn me. What an amazing, amazing opportunity that we have. Jesus loves us. He wants to spend eternity with us, with you. And all we have to do is just somehow... Get to Jesus. If you're in a place where you're feeling the struggle of getting to even backing up into Jesus, I know there are people around, myself, our lay pastors, who'd be happy to pray with you, to talk with you. This is important. This is life-changing. This is the kingdom of God at hand to live in His power. Let's pray. Lord.